Hi everyone, and thank you for tuning into the Australian Counselling Association's third podcast episode of The Counsellor's Couch. Today we're sitting down with Mark De Bruin, registered international counsellor, counselling supervisor, and founder of The Simplifying Life. Welcome, Mark. It's great to have you on The Counsellor's Couch today. Yeah, morning, Sam. Uh, welcome. Nice to be here. Yeah, absolutely. So, Mark, um, does the listeners understand, you know, a bit about your background? Do you mind um, sharing with us um, your interesting story? I know you've come from the Netherlands and now you're up on the Sunshine Coast. So it'd be great to get into that a little bit. Yeah, sure. Oh, look, it's a long story. Uh, probably uh, good for a beer or a glass of wine if you want to hear the whole one. But, uh, yeah, I started off my life as a, as a barrister solicitor, would you believe it, in the Netherlands where I'm from. Um, had enough of that, not in a bad way, but thought it was time for a change after about 10 years. So cut a very long story short, we moved to Australia in 2003 and uh, since then pretty much I've been involved in mental health. I started off as a life coach uh, that was my initial uh, dabbing into the field of mental health and uh, later on uh, not transitions but added uh, counselling on top and uh, have been training, counselling, life coaching, whatever you want to call it, a bit of teaching at uni, uh, teaching at a TAFE since, so it's uh, mental health since uh, 2005 really, Uh, awesome industry to be in. Yeah and what made you um, change from being a lawyer to, to a life coach? That's, that's the good question people always ask. Um, I, I live by a couple of really simple principles and that's probably also why my business is called Simplifying Life. Um, one of those being uh, treat other people like you want to be treated and uh, in law sometimes you treat people legally completely above board in ways that you absolutely do not want to be treated yourself. And uh, that started to, and there's more to it, but that started to sort of grate uh, a little bit. Uh, I didn't want to keep doing that. So at some point it was just uh, time to give up. Um, didn't have a plan B. Uh, burned all my ships, all my bridges, no plan B. So I had to make a change and uh, yeah, I came to Australia. I actually, well, if you don't mind me uh, sharing that story, we went to South Africa for a bit of sabbatical and I came across a, a complementary health technique called a body stress release, uh, which is kind of like Bowen therapy and some people might know Bowen therapy. Uh, studied that, took that back to Holland, was just interested in, in, a, in a different career and did that here in Australia as well. So started off on that one. And then you know, one day, or not one day, but I started to notice people asking me questions, you know, I was done treating them and they would go like, can I ask you a question? And then this whole story would come out that I didn't feel qualified to talk about, but it was counseling related type stuff, you know, just life stories or people with problems that went beyond the physical problems that they had. And I felt very uh, inept and inadequate and unqualified and go like, geez, I need to do something about that. And one uh, fateful day, my partner pointed out an ad in a local magazine that says life coaching training offered she said you should go to the introduction evening and so I did and so I signed up on the spot and, and that's how my journey began so it's it's from law which I sometimes say you know it's it's still very much law like you still help people to change their thinking but it's now with a win-win scenario in mind more than sometimes a win-lose scenario. So uh, I always use the American way that they call lawyers, they call them counselors. So I'm kind of still a counselor, but just a different industry. Oh, wow. Yeah, that, that's very inspiring. And I'm sure um, all our listeners would really appreciate that and maybe resonate with it as well. Uh, so without further ado, I think we should probably get into the podcast. Um, and today, being World Mental Health Month and World Mental Health Day um, later this month, I thought it was a good opportunity to chat about counsellors and counselling and perhaps debunk some of the myths or misconceptions um, around the industry. There seems to be um, some misconception about counselling and psychologists. Um, Do you mind explaining the difference or the similarities between the two? 
Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll take it a bit broader, if I may, even just the, the different mental health professionals. So there's, there's a bunch of them. Um, to start at the extreme end of the scale, psychiatrists, uh, mental health professionals, medical doctors who have had medical training specializing in severe mental illness, um, generally busy with prescribing medication and treating them. So they're on a on a far end of the spectrum. That's not counseling per se, even though they might do a bit of counseling, but they're definitely medical doctors. Uh, then on the other side uh, of them are the clinical psychologists who are psychs uh, also deal with severe mental illness uh, severe problems and have had specialist training in that particular field so they can diagnose assess and often work together with with psychiatrists for instance or gps uh, below them even though below is not the right way of saying it but you know slightly parallel to them are the, the registered psychologists what we would call psychologists in in normal terms they are the ones dealing with uh, moderate to severe mental health issues, but also with things that I would say are called mental ill health uh, and mental, well, what you would call it, stress, anxiety, depression, and the, and the stock standard stuff that we often deal with. And then there's us counselors. Now, in, in many ways, we do very similar work to what normal registered psychologists do. Clinical psychologists often do a little bit different stuff uh, because it's more on the severe end of the mental, mental illness scale. Uh, but psychs and counselors do roughly the same uh, work in many ways. Uh, and then there's social workers as well uh, who do their own thing. They're often very practical. Uh, they offer practical solutions for mental, uh, mental illness or mental health problems like housing, um, you know, relationship problems, domestic violence, and, and everything that comes with that. And then there's psychotherapists who are uh, generally also counselors, but generally would deal with long-term, uh, medium to severe mental illness. So they have a longer-term focus on things. So if you put them together, I think for me, and look, uh, obviously I'm biased towards counselors a little bit. Uh, I think that psychologists and counselors do very similar work in many respects, uh, often see a similar clientele. Psychologists have a slightly more specialist training in diagnosing, treating, and assessing people, which counselors can't. And there's a, there's a really big difference between psychs and counselors that psychology is very highly regulated, uh, federally, and federally and state regulated, whereas counselors, unfortunately, in a way, are only self-regulated. So we got the, the two main bodies, uh, the ACA, obviously, and PACFA, um, self-regulated, which sometimes uh, brings us in a bit of a weird position because anyone can call themselves a counselor. Uh, and that sometimes produces a, a view in the marketplace where you go like, well, what are you really? You know, are you, what are you? Are you a psychologist? And you're like, no, I'm a counselor, but what's that? And you have to explain to people what they do. But uh, very, very much similar work, similar fields. The psychologists are slightly more specialist uh, in, in their assessment and diagnosing and treatment of stuff. So a very parallel track, really. Yeah, absolutely. And we often hear um, that, you, you know, counsellors can't treat or support mental illness. Can you explain why or why, you know, people assume mm. this? Well, technically that's correct. If you would look at the word, we cannot treat. Uh, we do not diagnose. We do not assess per se. And we do not treat. Uh, I think those terms are more, uh, you know, just privileged for the privileged psychologist because they had training in that. But we can definitely work with people. Um Many psychologists will not treat, uh, they will work with people who come into their office and say, look, I've, I've got a problem, uh, help me work through this problem, brainstorm solutions with me, help me get a different perspective on this, uh, help me work through it, or even just, can I just dump stuff on your table because I just got a problem and I want to talk about it. And that's what many counselors do, uh, what many psychologists will do. Uh, but technically is correct, we do not treat. Uh, don't want to treat. That's uh, that's the that's a psychologist and psychiatrist prerogative. But 
a lot of people don't even need treatment. They just want a listening ear. Uh, they want someone to help them through, brainstorm some stuff, and, and have someone who actually empathizes with them and uh, yeah, just journeys along with them in, a, in, a, in many ways. Yeah, absolutely. Um, something we also hear is that um, there is a supply issue with um, mental health, the industry in mental health and you know, supporting those who, who need help. Uh, what is your opinion on, on that? It's, that's that's a really broad topic hey um, I think yeah if you look at mental health as, as as an industry or as a as an area of concern within health yes I think there is a, a supply issue absolutely but you got to look at it from different areas I think when you look at the public mental health like the the mental health wards the psychiatric units um, all the, the more severe cases I think there's a serious problem going on there uh, where people cannot get the assistance they need in the more the midfield so to speak the what i would call not mentally ill but mental ill health people with mental health issues or the the worried well if you would want to call them people like you and i have just come across a rough time uh, there seems to be a supply issue uh, because much of the funding and much of the emphasis of marketing and, and also government messaging goes towards gps and psychologists Whereas, you know, private uh, counsellors and social workers and psychologists as well who do not work with GPs go, we are actually quite available here. We, we can see people fairly quickly. You know, again, so take the, the severe mental health and mental health units out of that one, out of that discussion before people like you and I who are looking for someone to help them. There is this public, for some reason, I still don't know exactly why, but it, it must be because it's such an ingrained topic this idea that we have to go through GPs in order to get mental health care plans and then we have to see a psychologist where you don't really have to do that. You know, if you got the funds, uh, yeah, we're talking about the privileged few that can actually spend some money on, on their mental health. Um, there are plenty of counsellors, psychotherapists, psychologists, social workers out there, even psychiatrists that will see you privately. Um, but for some reason, if we just purely speak for the counsellors, because that's my bias, obviously, is like we are here. And if we hear of waiting lists of you know three to six months in the news, uh, to be honest, Sam, like I could see someone next week, Monday uh, or whatever date. But within 48, uh, maybe 72 hours, I could book someone in. So is there a supply issue? Yeah, in many areas of mental health, there is. Absolutely. Uh, but in the area that I work in with, with the worried well, the, the people having some mental ill health going on and the mild mental illness, I'm not sure if there's a supply issue. There's just this misconception that there is no supply. And yeah, as counsellors, we say, well, we can help. Uh, we can definitely contribute there. Uh, and I would assume uh, private psychologists and private social workers as well. Uh, we're ready. We can help. Do you have any thoughts on the apparent siloing of GP referrals to psychologists? Uh, yeah, um, probably can't mention them all because that would become really personal, but I think professionally I, I do. Um, because of this conception or this, this misconception that a lot of people have that you need to go to uh, a GP and then get a referral to a psych, I think that's kind of embedded in, in many parts of society now anyway. It's just been you know the way it is since, well, I kind of admit 2000s. So before that, the MBS was, was slightly different. Um, but it's it's created this perception that we need to be diagnosed before we can have mental health access. And that's not true. There's a couple of things I want to say about that from my own experience. Uh, first of all, 
diagnosing people is something that's necessary in order to access uh, Medicare benefits. So your GP will actually put a stamp on your forehead. Now, many people go like, yeah, but it doesn't really matter, does it? Uh, because it actually gives me access to a psychologist then. And go, well, in most cases, it won't make too much of a difference you know, to, to have a diagnosis against your name, which actually a lot of people don't even realize that they now have a formal, uh, according to the DSM-5, a mental illness. Uh, they have been diagnosed with a mental illness. And you go, like, oh, that sounds a bit rough. But that's the only way that you can get access to a psychologist through uh, Medicare. You have to be diagnosed with a mental illness, with a mental health disorder. Um, And many people go like, yeah, but hang on, I've just got grief or I just have a bit of depression or I'm just not feeling great. But in order to access those services, you need to be diagnosed. Otherwise, you can't access them. So now people have these uh, records against them where they actually have been diagnosed and that might be held against them. It doesn't always happen, but it might actually be held against them when they apply for life insurance or when they have, for instance, income protection insurance uh, or if they try to go for particular jobs in, in government or, or wherever in the army, for instance, they will do checks on your health. And if it comes out that you actually have been diagnosed previously with a mental illness, that could work against you. So this system where people, for really good reasons, because they have mental health issues, think they have to go to a GP, get a diagnosis, and then get mental health care, that they're doing the right thing, many people don't realize that that actually creates a couple of, it creates a couple of pitfalls and booby traps that they're just not aware of that could bite them in the backside uh, later on. And I think that's, that's something that the public just doesn't know enough. So that's one thought I have about that. Um, I've heard through good sources that there actually are incentives for GPs to create mental health care plans. So there's a financial benefit for them as well to then refer them on to psychologists. And that's something that a lot of people are not aware of. So, and I'm not saying anything, well, I'm not trying to be political here, that's not my point. But GPs, because of the system the way it is now, have a financial benefit or have a financial interest in actually writing mental health care plans and referring people to psychologists. So the siloing is because of mental health, not only mental health benefits, but financial benefits for the GP. It's also creating problems potentially for the client who now has a mental health label on their forehead that would not necessarily have to happen if they get referred straight to uh, a counselor without a diagnosis. And I know GPs actually in my my private circle who will uh, very readily uh, refer people to counselors without a diagnosis to it because even they the gp think there's nothing necessarily wrong with you you just got some stuff going on that needs to be sorted out so go talk to a to a counselor which can absolutely happen i think the problem starts arising that people have this expectation now that certain things need to be done a certain way and then get stuck in the system and i think it's a lack of awareness you know mental health is quite a complex uh, complex field with lots of complex rules um gps need to make money obviously because they need to put food on the table clients want their mental health uh, looked after and that creates that idea that that one has to do with the other which is just not necessarily the case so um the siloing yeah i think the siloing has happened over the last you know decade or so for all sorts of reasons and it's just created this skewed perception within the general public that they have to do things a particular way whereas there are so many other ways i know plenty of psychologists uh, that will not work under medicare because the 
the compliance that comes with that, the paperwork that comes with it, the all the the extra um, all the extra stuff, the extra hoo ha that comes with all that is just not worth it. And I think that's a, a problem for councillors as well, because obviously the ACA and PAC Five have been fighting for councillors to potentially get them uh, Medicare access. But you got to ask yourself the question whether you actually want that or not. Um, my practice, luckily, and I'm very blessed in that sense, is full enough to to not want to be on Medicare per se. Uh, it could be a good client funnel, but I don't necessarily need it. Uh, but for people that think, yeah, this is the way for me to go, I want to get access to Medicare benefits, you as a counselor will have to realize that that comes with a lot of extra responsibilities, a lot of extra compliance, and then you are forced into a treatment model or a treatment a way of having to deal with people, even though we don't treat, that is really narrow and quite specified. You can only do particular things. And to be honest, Sam, I'd rather stay in my own field, be able to do whatever I can within my ethical boundaries and, and within the code of conduct that the ACA supplies, rather than having to be forced to uh, help people in a particular way that they might not want, but it's the only way I can offer uh, in order to claim my rebate, and then having to do all the, the blooming paperwork that comes on top and have to be compliant and whatever else. So there's all these things that play in there. And I go like, well, yeah, the siloing, that's, that's something I can't do anything about. That's a political issue. But as counselors, you know, purely talking about counselors, you really got to ask yourself the question whether you want to be uh, involved in the Medicare scheme or not, uh, just because of all the extra paperwork that comes with and the extra responsibility. So it's up to each individual, obviously. But uh, yeah, I'm I'm not too keen, to be honest. Hmm. Yeah, well, that's super interesting. And in your experience, is there anything that members can do to be more proactive? Oh, sure. Look, I think uh, counselling is a business. Um, you know, we're not here to just hold our hand up and collect money. Um, it's a business like any business. Sure, um, I agree. You know, it's it's easier if you can claim higher rates, uh, like psychologists do, which they generally do anyway, and then get Medicare rebates back. Is like you know, you can charge two hundred dollars, uh, whereas most counsellors will work for anywhere between seventy-five and one hundred and fifty bucks. So. There is a financial benefit to potentially be on, on Medicare uh, or on the benefits, but you know, if you don't want to go that way and you just want to build your business because you are a business owner now as a counselor and you want to build your business, um, considering a business, because you could also work as a counselor, obviously, for wages or in a company or an organization, there's all sorts of ways you can get involved in mental health and actually make fairly good money as well if, if that's what you want to do. But say that you want to be a business owner, run your own practice, network. It's, it's, it's as simple as that, really. Write, write to GPs and say, hey, I'm a counselor. I actually have a special interest area in, I don't know, mindfulness, integrated cognitive behavioral therapy or expressive therapies, or I do a lot of trauma work, or I have been involved in couples work with the Gottman Institute, whatever it is. And you can write to those GPs and actually say, if you ever have clients that you do not want to diagnose, but you have identified them as needing help in that particular area, feel free to ring me. Yeah, network, uh, become part of, of network breakfasts like I am in my local area, just spread the word. Um, publish in magazines, spread the work with the, with the private uh, the primary health networks, for instance, be out there. Um, get yourself published in local rags, be on podcasts with the ACA, do, <laughs> do all sorts of stuff, you know, try and, and get out there, write LinkedIn articles, there's so much you can do. And, and look, I'm honest enough to say I'd rather hold my hand up and have it easy and just work with clients. But I think if you're a business owner like I am, you gotta you gotta market, you gotta you, know, you gotta sell your product, you gotta sell your services, and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, 
I think too many counselors, uh, I don't want to sound judgmental here, but I think a, a lot of counselors just want to make it easier for themselves, which I understand because I want to make it easy for myself as well. But you've got to realize that this is a business and you'll have to work the business. So networking, getting yourself out there, being seen, specializing or having a special interest area where you actually stand out, where you attract a particular clientele and then start working with that. There are great ways that we can do that. And obviously lobbying with, with the ACA, become an active member of the ACA or PACFA, make sure your voice is heard, uh, show up at, at AGMs, show up at committee meetings, whatever else. Um, there's lots that can be done to, to get the word out there. And I think we, we sort of owe it to ourselves. Hey, if you, own a, if you own a business, you want to run a business, you want to make sure it gets noticed. Yeah, that's some really good advice. And what are your thoughts on diagnosing people um, to access mental health services? Yeah, good question. Um, well, obviously, counsellors don't diagnose. Um, it sort of links in with what I said previously. Hey, I think diagnosing, look, it has its place, absolutely. Yeah, there are plenty of people who are severely mental, Ill, mentally ill who need a proper diagnosis to access either the proper medication, the proper treatment. So it's, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not dissing diagnosing at all. It, it definitely has its place. Um, in counselling, though, we don't need a diagnosis for, for people to see us. And the the majority of the clientele that we work with doesn't even need a diagnosis to get the results that they want. You know, sometimes a diagnosis can make a difference if, if someone has had major problems and they say get a, well, let's pick one, get an ADHD diagnosis, sometimes their life falls into place because all of a sudden it makes sense why they went through what's going on and then I can access specific treatment, which is which is awesome. But most of the people that I see in my private practice, for instance, they come in for three, six, uh, eight, maybe 10 sessions max. Uh, they have a problem, they dump on my table. They want me to f- help them find a solution for that problem. Uh, you might call that problem depression. You might call that problem anxiety. You might call it stress. You might call it relationship issues. You might call it grief, whatever you want to call it. And sure, you can stick a diagnostic label on that. But what does it matter? You know, these people, for us as counsellors, they have a problem. They want to know how to deal with the death of their husband, wife, child, whatever it is, or they want to work through the fact that they've been feeling really down over the last couple of months. And it's an interesting question, Sam. It makes me think about something that I've often said. is like when you look at what creates therapeutic success, and this is, this is not my stats. This is something I've read in research over and over again since the 1980s, I think, uh, when you look at what actually creates therapeutic success, or and success is a weird word, but what, what helps people, 30% of what actually helps people is the relationship you have with your therapist or with your counselor. Purely the fact that you're sitting in front of a person who understands or at least listens to you, empathizes with you, makes you feel trusted and makes you feel listened to, that already makes 30% of people feeling better. Yeah, 40%, so now we're looking at 70% already, is the fact that they have situations in their life that improve for, for the better, you know, they improve. So say that someone comes up and they have a relationship issue with their kid, and then during the session their kid you know, just improves their game, or you know, and, and all of a sudden those problems are gone, or they have financial problems and they're highly stressed, and then their financial problems resolve themselves so they now feel better. Yeah, a lot of that stuff, that 40% are what we call extra therapeutic or client factors, you know, just factors in the client's lives that, that go better and therefore they feel better. So now we're already talking about 70% of, of success. Then 15% is what we call placebo effect, you know, so the, the hope and expectancy that by seeing a person like me, 
that there's going to be a difference in their lives. You know, just the idea is like, oh, I'm going to talk to someone. So yeah, that'll that'll help. That's 15. So now we're talking at 85%. And then 15% left is the actual therapeutic technique to apply, cognitive behavioral therapy or solution-focused therapy or whatever, emotion-focused therapy or acceptance and commitment therapy. So purely the technique, which is what the Medicare-based system puts most of the emphasis on is only 15% of the actual success in treatment. The rest is the relationship with your counselor, factors in your own life, and the idea or belief that what you're doing will help you feel better. So with this whole diagnostics thing, sure, it has its place, absolutely. But I think for the majority of the people that I see, it doesn't make a rip of a difference whether they're diagnosed or not. They just want assistance with whatever problem they've got and they will start to feel better at some point because we are discussing it or their lives get better in general anyway. And, you know, the 15% treatment or the, the 50% specific technique, sure, I've, I've done uh, extra studies in specific uh, modalities and they help. They absolutely help. But I think it's, it's, it's kind of exaggerated uh, in a way that we say, well, CBT, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy is like the gold standard. It's like, well... Yeah, kind of in the Medicare model, but it's only 15% really. Uh, so what are we talking about? So there's, there's this weird perception uh, about what actually helps and, and how we can help people that puts us counselors kind of on the back foot because we're not acknowledged as such, whereas we can do so much more. And, and we're freer in what we do uh, rather than psychologists and psychiatrists as long as we stay within the guidelines of you know the ACI impact fund and our own ethical uh, concerns so we have more uh, more well, how shall I put it well more tools in our toolbox that we can use you know, to actually help people along uh, that psychologists and psychiatrists often can't use because of the restrictions of the Medicare system. Mark, given your extensive experience do you have any advice for those budding counsellors and students? Uh, yeah, advice for, for beginning people. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely, the ones on the way to this beautiful industry. Uh, yeah, I think from my experience, you know, making a complete career change and, and actually sort of finding my way through all by myself, um, uh, work-life balance is, is is super important, you know, and uh, that's why I call my business Simplifying Life as well. I think I'll keep things simple. Uh, this is a tough industry in terms of the effects it can have on you. Um, Often we go into counselling, I think, because we want to make a difference to the world, we want to make a difference to people, and we want to contribute something. And look, let's be honest, many counsellors often have needed counselling themselves or have had something going on that made them go like, I now want to help people either go through that thing the way I did it or in order to prevent them from having to go through that. So there's often a very personal component to, to the counselling industry. We, we, we don't just do it for the money, let's, let's be honest, uh, even though the money can be pretty good, but we don't do it for the money. I definitely didn't. I didn't start off that way. So I think to, to keep that work-life balance in check uh, is important. That's, I know that's a very bland description. It, it depends on, on what sort of level you work at or what sort of field you work at. If you work in domestic violence or if you work in well, whatever deep trauma stuff, then work-life balance becomes even more important and potentially you gotta look after your caseload to make sure you don't take on too much. Um, I actually started off working in vocational counseling, uh, career counseling for some uh, Centrelink-related uh, agencies. And you know, I was seeing eight people a day and they went like, how do you do that? I got questioned, people ask me those questions, like how do you do eight hours of, of seeing clients? And I go like, yeah, it's kind of easy because you help these people to become more employable and get back into the workforce. So it's kind of cool to do that. 
But if you work in domestic violence or, or you know, severe trauma, PTSD-related stuff, and, and you hear these stories, I probably wouldn't be able to do eight sessions a day. So it's, it depends a little bit on, on what you do. And um, what, we, what I learned at uni uh, and still am learning through supervision uh, is reflective and reflexive practice. You know? So in the moment, be very aware how your energy levels are. Uh, are you still doing okay? Are you still coping? And reflective afterwards as well. You know, was this a good day, or, or did it pretty much drain my batteries? And keep that in mind. Uh, you know, if if I run at absolute full bore, high revving, I could see forty clients a week, but I couldn't do that for long. Mm-hmm. Uh, I could not do that for long because that that would wear me out. And I think for budding counselors, it's it's really finding out in what area do you want to work in. Uh, talk to a lot of people that already work in that area to see how they experience that field and, and what they do for self-care and work-life balance uh, and then assess for yourself uh, you might be very good in that area and and not suffer at all but on the other hand you might take a lot of stuff on board and therefore have stuff to work through in, in supervision or with peers as well and you might be able to to not do it or you might not be able to do as much as other people do so it's, it's very much a personal journey uh, that's why I highly uh, you know, recommend supervision more than even the ACA recommends. You know, we have to do 10 hours or you know, one hour per 100 hours client contact, but do more. You know, have, have peer supervision sessions, have official supervision sessions to make sure you're still doing okay. Uh, it's, it's very much a, a constant monitoring you know, of yourself, I think. Um, I've got a, a bit of busy practice, which I absolutely enjoy. It's what I created. Um, when I started off, I said to my partner, the day I have to say no because I can't fit a client in one day, that'll be my absolute you know, absolute brilliant day. Now I have to say no every now and then, and it makes me feel really guilty. <laughs> so now I've got a different problem. Um, but just be very self-aware of, of what you can handle, how you feel, and how your energy levels are, and make sure you do stuff outside of you know, the mental health field to just uh, you know, keep you uh, keep you sane. Because otherwise, there's, there's, a, there's a fair big risk that we think that Everything is about mental health and, and all people are suffering and there's still lots of good stuff going on in the world and we can enjoy that too. Yeah, absolutely. That's some really good advice for our student listeners, um, student members listening. Um, thank you, Mark, for, for coming today and taking time out of your day to do this podcast with us. Do you have any final thoughts um, you'd like to share with our listeners? Oh, look, yeah. Well, thanks, Sam. Yeah, no, it was a pleasure to be here. I think, look, mental health is an awesome field to be in. Um, if you want to make a difference to the world, uh, there's many good ways to make a difference to the world, but mental health, absolutely working with people to make them feel better and sometimes getting that acknowledgement. And, and let's be honest, you know, a little ego trip is great. You know, if a person comes in and is like, that was absolutely awesome, Mark. It's like, yeah, my day is absolutely is grand. So to be able to do that, um, you know, like I said in the beginning, um, I like to be treated uh, how I treat others and vice versa. I like to treat others how I like to be treated. Um, I want to be treated well. I want to be helped. Um, you know, I want someone in need to, to listen to me. Or not, no, when I'm in need, let me put it this way. When I'm in need, I would love someone to listen to me and go like, okay, let's, let's have a discussion about this. Let's talk this through. And if I then walk away feeling great, that's something I think is awesome to contribute to in the mental health field. And it depends on what you want to do, whether you want to work with clients or you want to work with research or you want to be out there in the field making a difference in big organizations or in, in you know, community uh, community settings. You can do a lot of good stuff in this field. It's, it's a really brilliant industry to be in. Um, I can't think of anything else uh, that I want to do, but hey, look, the future could bring something. But uh, 
and definitely considering the state of health now and everything that's been going on with COVID and, and the ripple effects that, that that will have over the next five or 10 years, it's a splendid industry to be in. Um, and we can make a big difference. So yeah, I, I encourage everyone to go into this field. It's, uh, it's bloody awesome. Thank you, Mark. Thanks again for taking the time of your day. My absolute pleasure. Thanks everyone for tuning into the third episode of the Counselor's Couch podcast. If you'd like to get in touch with Mark from Simplifying Life, we've added his social media and website in the description box below. Likewise, follow us on social media for regular updates and new episode notifications.